please uh, join me in a word of prayer. Lord, as your Apostle Peter said in the epistle today, we are sojourners in this world and in this life. And I pray, Lord God, that your word would be a light unto our path, that our foot might not stumble. Lord, help me now as I preach, and all of us, Lord, to find you as the good way. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here we are in like, I don't know, week 10 maybe of the pandemic, and I want to begin with this question. What have you lost in the pandemic? What's been taken away from you? What have you had to give up? What, what are you missing out on? What are, you, what are you disappointed about? I've gotten a number of emails and then prayer requests that people are turning in on the, on the church's prayer page. And just in conversations with people, it ranges pretty widely. Everything from uh, people who know someone who has died from the pandemic uh, to people who've had to forego having a funeral because they can't gather in groups or they couldn't at that point. Others have been going to the hospital with a loved one and had to stay at the door as their spouse or family member goes in for a procedure. Others have to watch through a glass window. There are other things too. There's lost work. There's lost wealth, lost vacations and trips. Even for some people, their peace has been stolen away. It's probably a helpful exercise to actually in your journal or on a piece of paper, just make a list as a way of embracing the suffering that we're in as a people. What I realized is we are actually experiencing grief. We're in a process of grieving. About 50 or so years ago, a little bit more than 50 years ago, a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote a very um, well-respected book called On Death and Dying, and it's the first time that the, what are now called the stages of grief were laid out. Uh, you've probably heard the acronym DABDA, D-A-B-D-A, for denial, anger, depression, uh, bargaining depression, and acceptance. These are considered stages of grief. And it's not that they're a process you have to work through to come to terms with things, but they can be experienced. They describe some of the common experiences of people who are grieving or have lost something or someone. Um, Maybe some of those stages of grief have been common to your experience in this sickness. Um, Maybe you've been, like some, in denial. There is no virus. This whole thing is a government hoax. It's not real. And you are telling yourself that, denying it's there. Or anger. You find yourself underneath, kind of seething a bit. I realized I was angry for my daughter, who's a senior this year. She lost a spring break trip out west to see my brother. She's lost her prom, her grad bash, her graduation maybe in July. It's just been bad, and it's compromising the freshman year. I realized I was actually feeling angry about that, but I hadn't put words to it until I thought of this as a time of grieving or depression numbers have gone way up. Acceptance is a part of this. And there's even a sixth stage. One of um, Cooper Ross's colleagues, a guy named David Kessler, wrote a book later. uh, He had worked with her extensively called Finding Meaning. And the subtitle is The Sixth Stage of Grief. It's really helpful for us to find a purpose and a meaning in the thing that we've lost and the process of the suffering that goes with it. And I think that's really helpful for us in this situation that we're in to look for what is the meaning behind this? How do I find some sense of purpose in it? 
And I can tell you one of the big meanings or purposes that I'm finding in it is that this, like all suffering, is an opportunity for us to deepen and renew our trust in God, to focus on that relationship above all things or all other people. And today's text from John 14 is prompted by a sense of pending grief, um, by something that Jesus said in the preceding chapter. In John 13, he said this to his disciples, where I am going, you cannot come. I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. So, of course, Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And, and he again repeated, you can't come where I'm going. And Peter said, I'll, I'll even go to death for you. And then Jesus says, oh, really? You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows that you even know me. And what happened in this dialogue is all of the disciples started to have troubled hearts. They began to realize they were going to lose their Lord, or at least as they knew him as they had been experiencing him. And so Jesus starts into chapter 14 saying, let not your hearts be troubled. He's giving them a teaching here that helps them with the anticipation of loss and the grief that they're about to experience. Now, you need to understand how tightly woven that community was between Jesus and the 12. We in the West really appreciate our personal space. So even being locked up safely at home with our family, you've, if you live with a number of people, you probably have felt some cabin fever, like everyone's on top of everybody. I just can't get alone. I need to be alone. Well, it was worse for them because for three years, they, they had left their jobs. They left their nets, the fishermen. They, Levi left his tax booth, and they, they followed Jesus traveling around for three years. And the houses were small. And they often slept outside, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were like on a three-year camping trip with Jesus, and they loved him. It was that close and intimate, and that was a good thing for them. Jesus, of course, was sneaking away at times to go and pray to his father, and it was in the middle of the night or very early while everybody was asleep, but they were so close to him, and now he's saying, I'm leaving you, and you can't follow me. You can't come where I'm going. And their hearts got really grieved about this. And then he gives chapter 14. Now, contextually, it's part of the upper room discourse. So, you know, when he instituted the Last Supper and he washed their feet and Judas goes out to betray him, from John chapter 13 all the way to 17, really, but at the end of 16, Jesus is instructing his disciples right on the eve of his own death. And then in chapter 17, he prays to the Father, and we get to see what that prayer looked like. But I figured that we could break our text into two sections this morning, just the passage that I read from John 14, into going and knowing. The first part is going. We are going toward heaven. Thus, everything that we're suffering is temporary. And then the grief is tolerable because we can know God. And the going and the knowing are both possible because Jesus is the way. He's the way forward. In fact, Christianity for the first couple of decades was referred to as the way. Before it had been called Christianity, it was just simply called the way. It was a way of living. And Jesus expects his followers to live differently. He expects them to react to the situations and even the suffering and losses of this life in a different way. When he gets to the end of the upper room discourse, He says something that's very well known to all of us and is helpful in this time to keep reminding ourselves. In chapter 16, verse 33, right before his high priestly prayer, he says this, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, 
Be of courage. Don't despair. Don't give in to grief. Be hopeful. He expects his followers and has provided a way for his followers to grieve as people who have hope, to go through suffering as people that recognize it's temporary and as people that know he's with them. God is with us through the valley of the shadow of death. What's interesting about this text is, it was, by the way, it was the lectionary text prescribed for today. Um, In Easter, I've just been following what the prayer book recommended. Probably 90% or even more of the funerals I've done since I've been a priest have had this as the gospel reading. It's been particularly comforting as people are experiencing the grieving of death because it talks about hope of things to come. And in those funerals, I oftentimes will say, this, this funeral service is an Easter liturgy. It's, it's focused on the fact that Christ has overcome death, has resurrected and ascended and is in charge and is ruling and, and has all of history figured out. And so death doesn't get the last word. Now, I feel like I need to reverse that today because we're in the Easter season and I need to point out that we're grieving. We're in a season of grief. Now, the first part here, the idea of going, even as the Apostle Peter said in his epistle today, we are sojourners. We are on a journey. We're not static. This is not actually our ultimate home, at least not as it is right now. And and this helps us in suffering and loss because it tells us that history is pointing in a direction. It's not just a circular wheel that we're caught on. It actually is going to a, a, a point of termination. And what is that point? Well, we call it heaven, which is kind of hard for us to get our minds wrapped around. And so Jesus in this teaching uses the metaphor of a home or a house, a literal house. And he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And I'm going there and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I will come back and will take you to be with me. And what this tells me about God is a number of things. One, his hospitality. Jesus is using this metaphor and it speaks of the fact that God is a hospitable God. He's a relational God, and he wants us to be with him. It tells us that he's created a place of belonging, that we as, if you're a Christian, you're a son or a daughter of God. You're a co-heir with Christ. You belong in God's household, and there is a place for you. And it's a big place. It's abundant with rooms. So everyone who wants to be there can be there. And it's marked by love. It is for love that God sent his son. And Christ went through all his suffering out of love for us to prepare a place. Elsewhere in the scriptures, he talks about those who suffer for the kingdom in this life will receive a hundredfold more. And so we know that we're going on to heaven. We know that there's this glorious thing to come. And Jesus is telling us here that he is the way to get there. The best is yet to come. What this does is it makes grief temporary because we're going somewhere. And Revelation says that in that day, there will be no tears or crying or sorrow. Grief is temporary because we're going somewhere. Now, the second half of this, or the transition to it, is this great I am statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the seventh time he said this, or I think it's the sixth time he said this. No, fifth time, because he's going to be, I am the vine, and then he's, I am the resurrection. Anyway, there are seven of these in John's gospel. This is one of them, and it's an important one. I am the way. And what he's doing is he's making a reference back to when Moses asked God what his name was. And God said, I am that I am. The Hebrew word is Yahweh, the verb for being. Yahweh means I am, existence, being. 
And so Jesus here in the Greek, it's recorded in an emphatic way. I, I am the way. See, what had happened is the chronic classic misunderstanding of John's gospel where Jesus is speaking of spiritual truth and his followers, much like us, are far too physical, carnal, and and temporal. Like when he's talking to Nicodemus about being born again, Nicodemus thinks literal birth and has to involve a mother's womb. And he's like, no, I'm talking about spiritual birth. Or the woman at the well. He's talking about living water, the Holy Spirit, and she's talking about getting a bucket and going to get H2O from the bottom of the well. Here, he's talking about being the way, and Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, Lord. Show us the way. We don't have a map. And, and they miss that he's speaking of a spiritual as well as a physical journey. He's, he's talking up here, and they're thinking down here. And so it's this classic conflict, and he resolves it and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Philip jumps in and says, if you'll just show us the Father, that'll be enough for our troubled hearts. And Jesus, I think, is a little put off by this. How long have I been with you, Philip? The answer is actually three years. Three years we've lived in close proximity, and don't you understand that to see me is to see the Father? Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. The I am statement is him claiming divinity. He is God among us, and he shows us who God is. Now, this verse 6, this I am statement is troubling because some people read that and they immediately think it's about consigning individuals to hell as opposed to those that go to heaven. And so some people deny Christ's uniqueness here, and they begin to teach a universalism that all religions are equally valid, all people are going to heaven. Of course, they don't define what that heaven is like. Jesus defines it as the house of God where God's presence is. But some people deny Christ's uniqueness and put a way too high value or or, um, high view of the goodness of humanity, not just our brokenness and our need for a Savior. Others are too restrictive in this about the way that Jesus saves. If you don't go to our church or do our ministry the way that we say you should do it, then you don't get to go to heaven. And they miss the fact that God is merciful and he works in mysterious ways. And we don't really know all the ways that he's working. But what it does tell us is that no one who ends up sharing in God's life will do so apart from Christ. He is the way. And there's a positive to this. That is that Christ is offering everyone the gift of divine life in him and telling us how to get it. He's making it available to all. He says, I am the way, which is, of course, the, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But the way is really what he's focused on here because of the question about where are you going and we don't know the way. I am the way. And, he's, and it says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Well, he's the way by being the revealer of truth and the life giver to people in spiritual death. If you hearken all the way back to Genesis, you find that when God puts them in the garden, Adam and Eve I'm speaking of, he forbids them from eating from a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we think, oh, knowledge is good, right? Knowledge will build me up. But it's the knowledge of good and evil, but it's not just, it's not understanding it, it's experiencing evil. And evil enters in for them. And they now know about good and evil, They know it because they have evil hearts and God is good and there's this separation, but they don't know how to get healing. They don't know how to get restored. What's what's the solution to the problem? 
And Jesus says, I am. I'm the solution to that problem. I'm the way, the truth. I'm going to reveal to you the truth because I am the truth. And I'm the life. He's the one who's able to go through his own death, granting life to those of us who are in spiritual death so we can be born again. It's this great reversal. The way is through faith in Christ. The truth is that his word is the Father's word. If you want to know what God says, it's right here. That's why this is called the word of God. Jesus says in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus is sharing the heart of his Father as he's teaching, as he's speaking. He's revealing God to us in a way, a specific way. He's revealing specific things about who God is. And he's inviting us to a kind of abundant life. Dan mentioned it last week from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He's offering us a kind of life that is marked by knowing God, not knowing about him, knowing him. And that's a very important distinction. Obviously, these guys knew a ton about Jesus, but they still didn't fully know him. And he was going to reveal more of himself to them. You can know facts about somebody without having a personal knowledge. But if you actually have a personal knowledge of someone, you also automatically know facts about them. He's saying, I want you to know me personally, experientially. So it's not surprising then that this passage would transition to prayer because knowing someone involves a conversation. So he he goes down and he says, whatever you ask in my name, I'm in verse 13, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So he's invited a relationship with God in which we can approach God, we can ask him for things, we can look for his response. What Jesus has done is he's revealed the the Father's will to us. He's opened a way through him to be in a relationship with the true and living God. And he's told us what God's will is. So when he says, whatever you ask in my name, meaning in a in accordance with my character and my values and my mission, then I will do those things. So he wants us to participate with him in what he's doing in this world. If we understand the will of God, it will change our prayer life. If we understand that Jesus has opened a way to a relationship, we will start to pray and we will find how good he is. So back to grief. I think that as Jesus says, I am the way, being the way for us has made it a different kind of grieving experience. Whether it's a minor suffering, like you lost your vacation, or a major suffering, like somebody died, or you got sick, or whatever it might be, by these two things, knowing and going, we're able to get through it in a way that's different than those that don't know God. We understand it is going on a trajectory, that there is more, the best, in fact, is yet to come, and we understand that Jesus has opened up a way for us to know God. He does lead. He does give us his word. He is actively working in this world and in your life. So nothing is wasted in the suffering. He is using it for his purposes. And as we seek him, we can say, God, what are you doing in this time? How are you redeeming it? How are you using it? How do I pray in your name for what is happening? And I want to close by encouraging you to ask yourself, do I know God? And if you're not sure, I want you to talk to God about that in Christ. He's the way. 
the truth, and the life. He's revealed God to us, and he offers a new kind of spiritual life, a life in him. And it's a life of relationship with God. It brings us from down here on the carnal, temporal, worldly level into a spiritual reality that is eternal and goes on. And so we realize as sojourners in this challenge, in this suffering, in this grief, Jesus gives us a hope that will carry us through because he's the way. So I'm going to pray, and I want to invite you to join me in that, and then we'll have a a sermon response song as we reflect on the truth of God's word. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I'm able to stand here before your altar only under your cross because of what Jesus has done, opening a way for us to come to you boldly. Lord, I thank you that you make room for us in your house. I thank you for being hospitable and loving and good. I thank you for sending your son to die for our sins. And I pray that you would help each one of us to renew our commitment to you. And for those who've never trusted in you, that you'd give the gift of faith, that we would boldly approach you and pray, humbling ourselves, knowing that we need your salvation. And we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.